Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, last Wednesday night, we started talking about the local church. And uh, we're going to continue that tonight. I want to talk about the local church. What is it? What is the church? The church, what is it? What in the world is the church anyway? Uh, so we're going we're to continue talking about that tonight. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 13, a very familiar passage of Scripture. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and uh, if you'd love to see this area where this went on, you can go with us this November. Uh, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, man didn't tell you this, but by my Father which is in heaven. Literally saying, you've got divine revelation. You've got this from heaven. You've, you've received divine revelation. That's not what other people are saying. Other people are calling me John the Baptist. Other people are calling me. Nobody has dared say that I was the Son of God. Nobody's ever thought that. Nobody said that. But you got it by divine revelation. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock. What rock? The rock he is standing on? No, on the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the rock. On this rock, I will build my what? Church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Or the gates of hell will not overcome it. Last Wednesday, we began teaching about the church. And it sounds strange for a pastor to spend his time talking to the church, about the church. Because Christians know to go to church. That used to be the normal. You just go to church. If you're a Christian, you go to church. Uh, and if you didn't go to church, you'd, you were a backslidden Christian. All right? That was, that was the normal. Today's a new normal. It's not that case anymore. Many Christians don't attend church, they might go on Easter, they don't think about church, they're not involved with church. And uh, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, prophesied that these days would happen. Look back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit, notice that's a large S, the Holy Spirit, not your spirit, that's talking about God. The Spirit, large S, Holy Spirit, expressly says... Notice he intently says it. It's something he's really wanting emphasized. It's not a passing thought from God. This is something God expressly, definitely, we would say it this way, you can take it to the bank, it's going to happen. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, that word latter means last of the last, some, not all, will depart from the faith. They will, the Christians will depart. They will walk away. They will fall away. They will become distracted. They will leave. They will depart from the faith. Giving heed, that phrase, those two words, giving heed, is very unique. It really details and signifies Satan the way he does things. 
That giving heed means slowly turns. They will slowly turn to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. In other words, it won't be something that just happens overnight. It won't be an event that discourages them. It it will just be a slow process. They'll just start to get out. They'll just start to move away little by little over time. It won't be an overnight thing. It won't be a knee-jerk reaction. It just happens little by little. Remember the Old Testament character Samson? It just happened little by little until one day he realized when he needed the Spirit of God that the Spirit of God had left him and he didn't, it had happened so slowly he didn't recognize that the Spirit of God had left his life. I talked to a, a person yesterday, a, a grandmother yesterday who's, who said, Pastor, pray for my grandchildren. They, they were raised in church, and they'll tell you they're Christians, but they're living with people they're not married to. They're going out to bars every night drinking. They don't go to church. They're involved in drugs. Their lives are a mess. They're having children out of wedlock. But if I say anything to them, I'm judging them, and they're as much a Christian as anybody else is a Christian. See, what's happened? They've slowly turned. Didn't happen overnight, but they've slowly turned. And notice what caused this to take place. Notice what he says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed, slowly turning, and listening to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now turn over to the scripture we looked at last week, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25. Let us, the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Notice, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Notice he says there that as Christians, now let's read, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You know, I, I went to church for years, and when I was growing up in church, when people went to church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. How many remember that? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then you had a prayer meeting. Then you, have to, you would have a spring two-week revival. Then you would have a fall two-week revival. And God forbid that the Holy Ghost moved on Sunday night. Then they'd, well, we got to move a God. Let's meet Monday night, and let's meet Tuesday night, and let's meet Wednesday night. I'm, and and you, would just, you would just praying that the revival, two-week revival, would end in two weeks. Because if somebody dropped the hat, we're going four weeks, you know. We're going to have a move of God. It don't make any difference if God's there or not. God, something's going to move. And, and you were expected to be there every night. And if one person didn't show up, then the preacher would preach at the whole crowd about people going to hell for not coming to church. You know, Anybody remember those days? Well, notice what this scripture says. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Notice it doesn't say, let us consider one another and fuss at them for not coming to church. He says, let us consider one another 
and stir up love and good works. What's going to draw people back to the house of God who've walked away from the house of God? What's going to draw? Love and good works. Not fussing at them. Not berating them. Not getting mad at them and making them feel guilty for not coming. But stir them up for love and good works. And then notice what he says. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The writer of Hebrews sees the day coming when Christians will start being very erratic in gathering as a spiritual family. And he reminds us not to forsake and forsake not our gathering together. The word forsake there literally means to leave behind or abandon. Don't abandon church. Going to church. Fellowshipping with other believers. It's the same, the word forsake there is the same word, I shared this with you last week, that Jesus used on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It means to abandon. He's saying, let's not abandon our church gathering together. Did you know research? I mean, it's, you can look it up on the internet. Research is revealing that just about every church organization in America is decreasing in attendance and membership. Just about every church organization is decreasing in attendance and membership. I will say that the Assemblies of God is the one that isn't. And the only reason we're not is because of those Hispanics. They breed like rabbits. I've never seen nothing. I, those churches just, they start new churches like I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. It's not because of the traditional Assembly of God church. It's because of the Hispanic. See, when Hispanic, the Hispanics come over here, the only thing they have, they've left their family and friends. They've come over to, the only thing they have of community is their church. Is their church. Uh, back when I was district superintendent several years ago, I had a Hispanic church that was located in uh, Woodbine, Tennessee, uh, right there on um, Nolensville Road in Nashville. And a pastor had come from Guatemala, and he said, Pastor, would you, and they were in a little building. He said, would you help me? We're growing. We're growing. Can you help me get a bigger space? So he said, come to one of our services. I went to one of his services. It was a Tuesday night. And I walked in a room, no big, about twice the size of one of our Sunday school classrooms. And they had guitars and, and things like that. And I was, my jaw dropped. Because I saw the most beautiful, good-looking, clean-cut, roomful, packed, packed of young men. Who I know had worked construction all day long. And had gone home, cleaned up, and come to church. And they were going after God in worship like, like you'd never seen before. And they were just stacked one upon another. And today... That church, we were able to help them buy a bigger facility. And that church today has now planted, out of that church, seven other Hispanic churches. And, uh, and it's because when they leave their families in South America, their church community is all they have. Okay? Well, 
Research is revealing that just about every church organization is decreasing in attendance and membership. So we are seeing this prophecy spoken by the Apostle Paul come into pass. So it's a concern. It should be a concern to all of us. Last week we learned that a church is a place for relationship. What is the church? Why don't we go to church? What's a place for relationship? Do you remember us saying this? One of the first things we learned about God is that He is a heavenly Father. Being a heavenly Father, He is a relational being. We were made in, uh, in the image of our heavenly Father. Therefore, we are relational beings also. We were not designed to be in relationship with God alone. How many times you, I don't need nobody, just me and God. I just need God. Well, you need more than God. We were created to be in loving connection with one another. We cannot reach our full potential in Christ by developing our personal relationship with Christ only in private. It's important that we do our Bible study. It's important that we do our, have our private prayer and our private devotion. But understand this, we cannot reach... I cannot reach, you cannot reach our full potential in Christ by developing our personal relationship with Christ only in private. Some believers, some of us consider our faith to be a private affair. And that's what the government would try to tell you. Don't tell nobody about your faith. It's between you and God. It's a private affair. And, you, and uh, some believers have no, you wouldn't even know some of them are Christians because they never talk about it at work. They never talk about it. You have relatives who never talk about their faith. Now understand this. Times of fasting and private devotions are essential to spiritual growth. Yet they are not in themselves the path to spiritual maturity. In fact, continued personal isolation is a sign of spiritual weakness and immaturity. Okay? The Bible the Bible was not written to a single individual. It was written to families. It was written to communities of faith. The New Testament is written to local churches. It's hard to really understand the scope of the Bible and to interpret it correctly apart from being a part of a local faith community. How can you read Ephesians and just interpret it to mean it was just written to a person. It wasn't written to a person. It was written to a family of believers who are in connection with one another, rubbing shoulders with one another. When it says, walk in love toward one another in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about being a part of a local church family where people rub you the wrong way and their personality grates against your personality and you have to really exercise love as an action instead of a feeling. See? If all you do is spend time with you and Jesus alone, how can you walk in love toward one another? It's not hard to love God. Okay? It's hard to love everybody else. All right? The New Testament is written to local churches. Therefore, it commands, it commands were intended, our, the commands of it were intended to be lived out and proven within community. The message of Revelation. You know who that was written to? Seven churches. It, was written to, it wasn't written to individuals. It was written to seven churches. So, 
We need the church. It is a place for relationship. Now, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said this, Upon this revelation that I am the the Son of God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is even mentioned. So what in the world was Jesus introducing when he introduced the concept of a church? What is a church? We See, we are part of it. We've been a part of it. Many of you grew up in the church, so you just kind of have an understanding. This is the first time they had heard this word. He said, I'm going to build my church. And they said, well, hallelujah, glory to God. What's that? You know, you're the son of God. We believe whatever you say, but... What exactly are you building? What is the church? What is the church? And it's important that you and I remember what is the church. I can tell you, first of all, what it is not. In Scripture, the church never refers to a physical building. Never refers to a physical building. People, church congregations split, divide, walk away from loving fellowship with one another over buildings. And the, and the church is never referred to as a physical building. When I was district superintendent, I was either, I tell people all the time, I was either a referee or a ribbon cutter. I was either cutting a ribbon on a new building or I was referee in a church fight who were mad at other Christians about the building. In New Testament times, there were no buildings designated as churches. The people met in their homes for prayer and worship. Okay, so there was no buildings. Over the years, periodically, there is a revival of house churches. Met some people here a couple weeks ago. Amanda and I met some people here a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about their faith. I said, oh, great, where do you go to church? Well, we don't go to church. We don't believe in organized religion. We got a, we got, well, what do you believe in? Unorganized religion? I mean, what do you believe in? There's nothing worse. Only one thing worse than organized religion is unorganized religion. And uh, so, well, we got a few people that meet in houses. Well, see, every once in a while, there comes around this fad of house churches again. Because people get to thinking that the, rebuild, the building or referring to the church structure is the problem. They endeavor to go back to the early church model where believers met in people's homes. And there's nothing wrong with having church in someone's home or worship in someone's home. We encourage our life groups to meet together in people's homes. But we've erred on both sides. Some feel like worship can only take place in a designated facility. I've had people say, well, just a metal building, I just can't do it there. It doesn't feel like church. Okay? And then I've had people say to me, I just can't, I can't do church in a building. You know, the early church didn't do it in a building. They did it in homes. And what's happened is we've erred on both sides. While others feel like worship is better expressed in a local house and a dedicated facility hinders their freedom of expression of worship. 
So some people say, I can't worship in a house. I got to have a dedicated facility. Some people say, I can't worship in a dedicated facility. I got to worship in a house. I've got to have freedom. And we've erred on both sides. Listen to what Jesus said, John chapter 4. This was a problem back in his day. The lady said to him, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem, the woman at the well, she said to him, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. In other words, where's the, where's the proper place to worship? Notice Jesus' response, verse 21. Jesus says, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet Jerusalem worship the Father. And then he notice what he says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is. Everybody say now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Listen, saints. It's not the place of worship that God approves. It's the heart of worship which he approves. It's not the place. It doesn't matter if you worship in a, in a storefront or a dedicated cathedral, uh, a hundred-year-old facility that the saints have worshipped in for years, or if you worship in a new church plant in a school auditorium. It's not the place of worship. It's the heart of worship. And here's what's important to understand. God's people, God has placed it in his people's heart. They have always sought for and had a desire for a designated place of worship. In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle. that they, Wherever they went, they took their church house with them because they had a desire for a designated place of worship. There's nothing wrong with a designated place of worship. Nothing wrong. From the tabernacle in the wilderness in which they carried their worship facility everywhere they went to the temple, to the synagogue in the New Testament. The problem for New Testament Christians, they were not welcome in these established places of religion. Therefore, they had to meet wherever they could. Caves, catacombs, houses, riverbanks, open fields. They wasn't welcome in the synagogue. They wasn't welcome in the Jewish temple. So it's not that God was saying, I don't care about that. That place is not where you worship. They wasn't welcome there. So wherever they could find together and they wouldn't be found and persecuted, that's where they worshiped. So to say, well, house worship is the best kind of worship, that's an errant statement. To say a, a, a hundred-year-old building where my grandparents were, that's the, best, that's the best place to worship, that's an errant statement. It doesn't make any difference where you worship unless it, what it makes is your heart to worship. I've been in hundred-year-old buildings where the worship was not wonderful. And I've been in school auditoriums where people went after God with all their heart. It's the heart of worship. The location of worship was not the emphasis. It was the coming together as a family of like faith, which they promoted. Okay? So whether you're in a metal building, whether you're in a brick building, 
whether in your building with a steeple, working with a pastor right now, lo and behold, he just took down the church steeple. You would have thought that the garden tomb had been closed up by an earthquake. People in that church have gone bonkers. One man even went to the dump and got the, the uh, what did he get, Mandy? The boats that held the steeple onto the roof to bring it home so he could have that vestige of worship. Went to the dump and got the boats, dug through the garbage and got the boats. Those boats were holy in his eyes. Think about it for a second. See how, see how far off we get. Should the pastor have tore down the steeple? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Our steeple here, it's good for two buzzards that sit up there every single day. Don't they, Pastor Gary? The only people that ever goes up there is two buzzards, and they just watch everything that goes around. There's nothing wrong with steeples. There's nothing wrong with buildings that doesn't have a steeple. Oh God, let us grow mature enough to know that that's not what God is after. He's after hearts that worship Him. All right? The location was not the emphasis. It was the coming together as a family of like faith, which they promoted. If the church is not a physical building, and if it's not a denomination then what is the church? Jesus said, I will build my church. So what is he building? He said, I'm going to build it. So what's he building? If it's not a building, if it's not a physical location, then what's he building? I'm going to build my church, he said. The word church comes from the compound Greek word ecclesia. Ecclesia, it's two words, ek and lesia, all right? The word was not religiously it was not originally a religious word. It was a common word uh, to Greek-speaking pagans and was the designation for the group of men who were at times were called out of their homes or places of business to conduct civic business. It was a word used for the gathering of people. The literal root of the word means to call out of. So Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. He says, I'm going to call people out of. In the Bible, the church is referring to people who have been called out of sin and the world and who have assembled for a common purpose. So it matters not what the facility is as long as the people who have been called out come together in loving fellowship with one another and adoration and worship to God, then you have a church. Whether it be in a barn, whether it be in a dedicated, beautiful edifice of a structure of a tabernacle, or whether it be in a metal building, when the people who have been called out of the world and sin gather, you have a church. Um, the Bible, the biblical use of the word church has two significant meanings. 
number one. Uh, it is used as a designation for a local congregation. Designation of a local congregation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 2. Notice what he says. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says this. To the church of God, to the church, called out ones, which is at Corinth. So he's, he's literally talking about a local congregation. This is the church who, who called out Christians out of the world and out of sin who lived in the city of Corinth, Greece. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Let me give you another one. Turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Here we go. Here's a good one. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. The Holy Spirit through Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. And notice what he says in verse 5. Likewise, greet the church. That is where? In their house. So notice it wasn't the house that made the church. It wasn't the cathedral that made the church. It was the called out ones that made the church. Okay? So the second meaning is the whole company of born-again believers, regardless of location or time. So the word church has a twofold meaning. It means a local group of people in a local area who've been called out of sin and out of the world. And it also means... The universal church, invisible church, which is referring to everybody who's been born again. Whether they're alive or whether they're in heaven. The universal church. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the in the what? Everybody say church. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations. Forever and ever. So who is the church? The church is people who have ever lived on this earth and been born again. And if they're, if they're in heaven now, they're still a part of the church. Okay? The church is not a physical building of brick and mortar. It is not one denomination. There are some churches that believe they are the church and everybody else that's not a part of them is not the church. Bless their darling hearts and stupid heads. All right? The church is not a building of brick and mortar. It's not one denomination. It is the called out one. It's a spiritual fellowship comprising all who have been born again. Whether you're Methodist or Church of Christ or Assembly of God or Church of God or Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian, not many of them, but it, it's all, it's, it's everybody who's been born again. Members of the church are referred to by several names in the Bible. Members of the church are, number one, they're, they're referred to as saints. 
saints. Separated ones. This title has, now get this, this title has nothing to do with the idea of perfection. Well, I, he sure don't act like a saint. Has nothing to do with the idea of perfection. Has to do with separation. You're separated from a life and a relationship with sin. Doesn't mean you don't sin, but you've been separated from that life. That doesn't mean you will not sin. It simply means you've chosen to live in relationship to God and not the devil. Romans chapter 1 verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be what? Saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen real closely. Listen to me now. If you are born again and have asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you are a saint. You're not a sinner. You're not a sinner. I often hear Christians say, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. That's not true. Stop saying that about yourself. You were a sinner. You were a sinner. Grace saved you, and now you are a saint. If grace didn't save you, then you're still a sinner. And you need to get saved. But you can't be both. Out of the same fountain cannot flow both bitter and sweet water at the same time. Your yea's got to be yea and your nay's got to be nay. See, you can't be both. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner. Grace saved you. Now, if you're still a sinner, then grace has not saved you. Okay, His grace is sufficient for us and it's sufficient to save us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth. To the church of God which is at Corinth. To the church. Who is the church? It's called out ones. To the people who have been called out of a world of sin at Corinth. To those who are sanctified. That word sanctified means set apart in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Both theirs and ours. Paul called the Corinthians saints. <laughs> now, if you can't get this, if you don't get this through your head, you're, you're not going to... He called the Corinthians saints. And they were the most messed up bunch of Christians you would ever meet in your life. They were far from perfect. They couldn't get along with one another. They were immature. They were hyper-spiritual at times. They condoned sin at times. Their church service resembled a three-ring circus. Yet Paul calls them saints. He calls them saints. So that should give some of you hope. You're a saint. Now listen, if we start seeing ourselves as God sees us, instead of repeating who the devil says we are, we would experience some freedom in our lives. You're not a sinner, you're a saint. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Notice what it says, a very powerful verse. Help me years ago. Awake to righteousness. Wake up to who you are. Wake up to your right standing with God. You're not a sinner, you're a saint, child of God, born again. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Wake up to that righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to their shame. 
Look at Romans chapter 6, verse number 11. Romans 6, 11 says this, Likewise, reckon, that word reckon literally is an accounting term in the Greek. It means to consider, calculate, count, calculate, count, consider yourself dead indeed to sin and alive to God. Count yourself. Consider yourself. You say, well, I'm, I'm still messing up. Well, it don't make any difference. Count yourself. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's something supernatural, something amazingly wonderful. There's something remarkable about the Word of God. And when you start seeing yourself as the Word says you are, it has this amazing remarkable, supernatural, reflective quality about it. The Bible says in the book of Corinthians that, we, that as we look into the Word of God, we will see its glory and it will get on us. It will get on us and we'll become what it says. It will become what it says. For years I was bound by lust. I was bound by lust. Every day I tried to get lust off of me. I tried to stop thinking those thoughts. I tried to start stop fantasizing about that stuff. For years, and I'd cry and I'd pray and repent every single day. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, I didn't mean to. And the next day I'm back. Doing, oh, God, forgive me. And all of a sudden one day in prayer the Lord said, showed me that scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. Wake up to righteousness. You are the redeemed of the Lord. It's not that you have to get this off of you. You're on top of it. You don't need it in your life. It doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't help you. It doesn't make you any better or complete. It's not something that you have to get rid of. It's something that you don't need. Wake up to righteousness and sin not. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin and alive to God. Another title, members of the church are referred to as brethren. I may have heard that, brethren. There was a bunch of fellas eating over there before service in the fellowship hall, and I went up to them and said, hello, brethren and sistering. All right. Brethren. Brethren. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. 1 John 3, 14. Notice what it says. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the what? Brethren. The word brethren signifies all Christians belong to one spiritual family. He didn't say, well, you brothers who are part of this church, or you brothers. He just called them all brethren. It signifies we all belong to one spiritual family whose father is God himself. It implies that we are all equal before God. We're brethren. So we're saints. We're called saints. We're called brethren. Look at Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're all equal. The, the scriptures also speak of the church, and I'll close with this. It's number three, the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Glory to God. We're the bride of Christ. I, don't, I won't take time to show you those scriptures, but that signifies... We're beautiful. We're in a relationship with love, of love with Jesus, or God the Father. Anticipation. Oh, man. June the 20th, 1980, when that beautiful little blonde walked down that aisle, all I had on my mind that night at 
was anticipation. <laughs> anticipation. Likewise, Jesus looks at us with great anticipation. He's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's in love with the church. Number four, the building is referred to in the Bible as a building. The church is referred to as a building, a temple. So that means the members of that building are called living stones. Peter calls us living stones. This signifies strength, stability, and holy. So we're called saints. We're called brethren. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called a building. We've been called a temple. And finally, the church members are called a human body. We're referred to in the Bible as a body, which signifies it's living. And each part, each person has a vital part. <laughs> I'm telling you, this, this mystical thing that Jesus is building is quite remarkable. That He loves. He's coming back for. He calls holy. And that's why he says in the book of Corinthians, if any man tries to disrupt it, God takes that personal. And him, God will destroy. Our little church in Allgood had really started taking off. And... and, uh, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, a man who was a not a, who was an ungodly man, but he'd controlled the city. He controlled the city council, little city council. He had them call a special meeting, and they called me in. And he got up in that meeting that night, half drunk, and started criticizing the church and how the church had destroyed the city. And how they had a nice little city until that church came in there. And he wanted that church gone. And uh, I'd never experienced anything like that. I thought everybody loved the church. And that to run into that, it, it threw me for a loop. Two weeks later, his wife called me. said, Pastor Turner, can you come over to our house? And I thought, oh, I ain't coming over there. <laughs> She said, no, that's my first thought. No, I'm not coming over there. Why would I come over? Why would I want to go over there? She said, I need you here. I know my husband was mean, said some terrible things. And I asked you to forgive me. And I asked you to forgive him. I said, well, okay, I will. She said, I need you over here. I said, why do you need me over here? She said, my husband has just shot and killed himself. See, God turned him over to the tormentors. Turned him over to the tormentors. Another man, about that same time, it was about a month later, uh, the city said, now we want you to put sidewalks down through there. Or they told me, don't worry, that we had old sidewalks that were built in front of our church in the 40s. And when we built our new facility, I asked them, do you want me to put... Replace these sidewalks. They said, nah, don't worry about it. 
Nobody walks on them things anyway. They were a nuisance. They were cracking up. Roots from trees. Don't worry about it. Nobody walks on them anyway. Well, there was two or three neighbors, and one led by one neighbor who called another city councilman and called me back in and said, we want that, that church must replace those sidewalks and was criticized and wrote letters to the paper about us and things like that. And I said, we, we offered to do it, but they told us not to. We it demand that church put those sidewalks. So I said, okay, that's fine. I will be happy to. We offered to do it. We'll be happy to. So the city came in there, and they did the sidewalks. They poured them, and they taped them off. And I remember it was a Thursday morning that they were going to take the tape down and brand new, I mean, we built sidewalks, almost a hundred yards of sidewalks. Not even in front of our church, all the way down to the ballparks. We built sidewalks and was glad to do it. And that man said, I'm going to be the first to walk on those sidewalks. I'm going to be the first to walk on those sidewalks. You tore up our sidewalks and I guarantee you're going to fix them and I'll be the first to walk on them. So they were going to take the tape off of them because they had cured. And on Thursday, they were going to have a dedication. And he said, I'm going to be the first one to prove to you you're going to put those sidewalks in there. 6.30, he sat up on the side of his bed, took one step to go to the bathroom, fell over dead. Never walked on the sidewalks. <laughs> well, after that other fella did what he did, and this guy fell over dead. I had no problem getting whatever I wanted for the church. Is that not right, Amen. In fact, they said, don't mess with that church. Don't, don't mess with that man of God. Don't mess with that man of God. 